I'll have a- Welcome back to Adult Sunday School. It's been a little while since, feels like forever. I barely remember what we talked about last time uh, before Easter. But I looked through my notes and realized we were talking about uh, Luther's great debate at Leipzig in 1519 uh, with the Catholic scholar Johannes Eck. And you'll remember every time Eck quotes canon law uh, or papal decrees, Luther responds uh, with, with a quotation from Scripture. And so almost in the course of that Leipzig debate, Luther comes to uh, a new higher appreciation of sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is the authority for the life uh, and doctrine of God's people. Well, <clears throat> after 1519, uh, moving into 1520, it was a really busy year for Luther, uh, putting pen to paper. Uh, Luther wrote something like 28 to 30 um, texts, books, small books, pamphlets, large works uh, in, in the space of one year. Uh, but things were really heating up with the church. Um, you might say that Luther was almost casually optimistic uh, at the beginning of 1520 that, that the Pope would come to his senses, uh, that maybe the Pope had... had Cardinals whispering in his ear, but eventually uh, those cardinals would be silenced and the Pope would wake up and, and take charge of the reform of the church. Um, he's, he's almost optimistic. The word will do the work. The Pope will wake up. The church will be reformed. Um, have no fear. But moving into the 1520s, he, he actually, his optimism fades, really, um, by the, by the end of the 1520s, actually, Luther's in a bit of a state of spiritual depression. Um, I mean, he took it quite seriously because things weren't moving forward quite as he'd hoped, uh, especially where it concerned Rome. In fact, not only were things not moving forward, in some cases they were moving backwards. And so questions are swirling around in Luther's mind in the early 1520s. Um, who will reform the church if the church seems incapable of reforming itself. The Pope is supposed to be the ruler leader of the church. He has questions about the authority of the papacy. Uh, but the question is, well, what do we do now if the Pope's not coming to his senses? That's why Luther starts to become a little bit depressed. Um, and then he's also, I think, just asking, um, why won't the church, as headed in Rome, reform? So who will reform the church if the Pope won't? And why won't the Pope uh, reform the church? And so in the 1520s, he starts to think a lot about uh, the reform of the church in a theological manner and in a practical manner. Uh, And he's forced by Rome to think about the question and problem of authority. It was clear for Luther at Leipzig uh, that sola scriptura, that scripture alone was the authority. From Rome's perspective, the main problem, uh, the Luther problem, was about Luther challenging the church's authority. So everyone is thinking about authority. Who has it? Who's going to use it? And how? So Luther, in 1520, writes, uh, it, well, 1520 and, and then a couple years after, writes at least three treatises where he takes up the question of, of authority. And they're pretty interesting to consider. Uh, we'll consider just the first one, really, today. Well, maybe I'd make a few references to, to the other two. Uh, the first one written in 1520 is his address to the German nobility. 
where he takes up um, uh, this complicated little diagram. It's not actually very complicated. Uh, that I'll explain in a second. In 1523, he writes another treatise uh, on temporal authority, to what extent it should be obeyed. It's a fascinating subtitle. On temporal authority or civic authority, to what extent it should be obeyed. Because from Worms in 1521, Luther's a criminal in the state. And so the state is out to get him. Well, if the state's telling you kidnap or arrest Luther, kill him, to what extent should you obey uh, the temporal authority? And that's what he writes in 1523. Uh, 1526, he writes another uh, pretty interesting little occasional pamphlet after a conversation with a soldier. Um, uh, whether soldiers too can be saved. That's the, question, that's the title of the work in 1526. Uh, in, in different ways, then, each of those three takes up the question of the civil magistrate, of temporal authorities, uh, of, the, of the role and status of, of the state. But we're going to look at the first one today, uh, the address to the German nobility. It's a fascinating little, <coughs> little work that emerges out of what I've just described, Luther's sense that Rome isn't taking action as quickly as they should and as decisively as they should. So who should reform the church? And he ends up making an appeal, an address, to the German nobility, to Christian German princes, to take up the cause of church reform. Um, A bit of a controversial, although not unprecedented, step. Um, He takes up that appeal in this address, and then he also considers why... Why does Rome seem incapable of changing? What theological problems are at work um, in, in Roman theology? And he comes to describe um, a three-walled fortress. Uh, so imagine a little triangular castle with, th- with three walls. Um, Rome, he says, the Pope, is, is hiding inside the castle behind these three walls. The three walls of their defenses are, first, Uh, The hierarchy of office, I'll explain what each of these means in more detail in in just a few minutes. The second wall is the priority or primacy of papal interpretation of the Bible. The the Bible, as interpreted by the Pope, is how the Bible is supposed to be understood. Um, The Pope's interpretation, in other words, has precedent over all other interpreters of the Scripture. And then the third wall that the papacy is hiding behind, uh, both an obstacle and a barrier, to church reform, is the right, I almost misspelled right, the right of the Pope to call church councils. So at the very beginning of this treatise, uh, Luther appeals to the German nobility and, and says this. Um, he's offering a few humble points on the matter of the reform of the Christian church to be laid before the Christian nobility of the German nation in the hope that God may help his church through the laity, since the clergy, to whom this task more properly belongs, have grown quite indifferent. And so he reminds the, uh, the German princes right at the outset that as Christians, they have a responsibility to the church, but that they ought not get overly haughty about uh, their power. In fact, he has a lengthy quotation of Psalm 33 and a discussion of Psalm 33 to set the tone of the debate. Here's the passages of Psalm 33 that he that he quotes. I'll just read these quickly. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 16. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsels of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. This is the verse now that's particular interest to Luther. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. The psalm goes on from there. So Luther offers this very interesting um, little, a little homily on this passage to the German nobility, asking them to take charge of the church, but to do so with a posture of humility, to remember that it's not the king's might that saves him, that it's, that it's the Lord uh, who will rescue and deliver his people. It's the Lord's counsel that one has to rely on. So he sets the tone. One of the interesting things about this entire treatise to address the German nobility is Luther's use of scripture. And that's why we're going to read some of the, some of the verses that that Luther um, cites. Why Psalm 33 right at the outset? Because it sets the tone. The Lord is sovereign over all. The Lord's counsel will stand. Uh, Nations uh, rage about foolishly, but their plans will be disrupted. And even kings who Luther is calling on to, to help the reform of the church, even kings should know that they're not saved by their might, uh, by, their, by their office. They're saved by the Lord. Um, so he establishes a number of priorities right at the outset. And then he reminds everyone, uh, reading his treatise of the story of Jericho. And he says, may the Lord give us a trumpet to blow, to bring down the three walls uh, that, the, that the Pope is hiding behind. There's nothing in a trumpet that should bring down the walls of a castle. Uh, it's clearly the Lord's work. Um, but he calls on, on God to, to use his own work uh, as a trumpet to blow to bring down these three these three walls, so the hierarchy of office um, what's what 's meant or implied by this first wall? Um, Luther criticizes the distinction between um, religious and secular callings. What's at stake in the hierarchy of office is Luther's concern that that the Pope is somehow manipulating Christian consciences by asserting a higher level of status for religious callings for the clergy. That they've convinced, uh, that the Pope has convinced the Christian laity um, that this is a hierarchy I should say, not just of office, but of person. That somehow those who take up religious callings, priests, monks, ultimately the Pope at the top, 
um, have convinced the laity that they have uh, a status that belongs to their person because of their religious calling. Uh, that there's a kind of supremacy of church leadership uh, that's more important, that trumps uh, lay Christian, uh, the, the lay Christian people. So Luther challenges the distinction between religious and secular callings and uh, uh, challenges the, the notion that the religious calling of the priesthood, and especially the papacy itself, um, should be held in such a high regard. Um, his distinction is really... Um, he prefers, he uses the religious secular distinction, um, but first he makes this distinction right here between office and person. The only way to even enter into a discussion uh, of, of authority, of vocation, of a whole host of different issues is to make a distinction between um, people, Christians, and the offices or vocations that they hold. There may be a hierarchy of office. But don't make the mistake that Rome does of, of attaching uh, a value to the person in accordance with the hierarchy of office. Does that, does that make sense? Um, it's as if Rome eliminates this distinction between office and person. And so if your office, the pope, is at the top, your person is also uh, occupies the same place on the hierarchy. And Luther so then makes a distinction between office and person. Um, and assists, insists on um, the priesthood of all believers as one of the great hallmarks of Reformation theology. By virtue of being in Christ, all people have the same status, redeemed, regardless of whether they're the Pope or uh, a, lowly, a lowly peasant or anywhere in between in the ecclesiastical office. And to make this argument, he cites 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 12 to, to 14. Who, Chris, yeah. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, so many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and all were That's the first scripture that he relies on in this, in this section. Um, we're all baptized into Christ. We may have, there may be different parts of the body, different offices, uh, but in terms of our status of being redeemed, uh, we're the same. Uh, and in fact, all are, are priests. He cites a host of other scriptures that we won't read. Romans 10, verse 12, Galatians 3, 28, Colossians 3, 11. All to the effect, um, in the new covenant, there, are, there is no uh, master or servant. There's no uh, Greek or Jew, uh, etc. Um, we all have the same status as, as believers. And so Luther says, um, it follows from this argument that there is no true basic difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status. They, meaning Christians, are all of the spiritual estate. All are truly priests, bishops, and popes. But they do not all have the same work. So the priest of all, of all believers, dignity of being 
fellow image bearers made in the image of God and ultimately our status of being in Christ um, levels the playing field in the, uh, in the body of Christ. That's the argument that he makes. And, and he, he works this out in a couple of different ways. One, one fun thing to do might be to make reference to that, to that little text that he writes in 1526, um, whether, whether soldiers too can be saved. Um, he has a, an interesting discussion with a soldier uh, a soldier comes to him really struggling in his own conscience. Can he serve uh, in the military uh, as a Christian? Can he go to the battlefield and kill? Uh, is this a legitimate calling? And in this 1526 text, Luther uh, refers to these distinctions again between office and person, religious and secular calling, and, and wants to give secular callings... Um, a new, a new appreciation. He says any calling is, is legitimate if it serves the body of Christ. Uh, if it serves the, the common good of the people in Christendom, it's a legitimate calling. And uh, that includes military service. It includes even being a hangman, he says. In fact, at one point, he, he sort of uh, he makes an interesting critique of, of a story uh, that he's heard, a common story about, about hangman in France, uh, a hangman who, before, before beheading, before executing the death sentence, uh, asks forgiveness or pardon from, from the criminal who he's about to behead. And Luther actually uh, is almost derisive about this, uh, about this scene. Uh, he says... That kind of approach to calling presumes that the hangman is somehow doing something wrong rather than obeying a legitimate calling. And so he suggests that, I'm not, not saying we you know, put this into practice today, he suggests that the hangman has no need to apologize to the criminal. The criminal has violated the law, the state has passed its, uh, its sentence, and the hangman, in a legitimate calling, ought to be able to go forth, carry out the execution, with no need to apologize, as if he's somehow personally sinned against, uh, against this individual. Well, why, though, uh, how could Luther come, as he does, to call this even a spiritual calling, to be a soldier on a battlefield, to be uh, a hangman or, or an executioner? Um, Luther says all callings, not just religious callings, but all secular callings, if they're legitimate, can be made spiritual when a Christian exercises them in faith. Whether you're a peasant uh, uh, working in the fields, whether you're a shoemaker, Luther was obsessed with, sh- with shoes, apparently, and shoemakers. Almost all of his examples about callings and vocations have to do with shoemakers. Maybe he had bad feet. I don't know. Um, but whatever it may be, if you go about your task and vocation um, in faith, then it is a religious and spiritual calling, even if it's uh, a secular calling, like making of shoes. So Luther actually comes to his view of vocation um, by way of an argument against uh, papal authority. Um, And so he makes all these distinctions between sacred and secular office and person um, in order to combat this idea that somehow uh, the very person of the pope is endowed with a higher degree of, of, of value 
uh, and worth. Are there any questions about that before we go on to the, to the second? I, f I feel like I've made a jumble of it in, in some ways, but is there any questions or comments? If it's at all confusing, just go back to Reverend Brown's Sunday School series on, on vocation and calling, um, because the Reformed tradition, in fact, gets uh, most of these same distinctions and categories from, from Luther. Yeah, T? That's interesting. In, in, in 1525 or 26, he gives up monastic clothing. Um, and I think in part, wrestling through this, uh, this notion of a distinction between religious and secular callings, he, he comes to uh, distance himself from that monastic, the monastic vows that he, that he took. In fact, in a few years, he'll get married. Uh, so clearly at that point, the monastic vows wouldn't wouldn't matter, but he really comes to this a little more gradually. Um, but that's a good question. Chris, yeah? Yeah, that's, I mean, it, this kind of distinction between office and person is really helpful because there are um, analogies even just in the secular world. I mean, we all, higher offices, we tend to, to speak of, of the holders of those offices as if they themselves are, are somehow special and unique. I suppose the takeaway of, of this um, and of all of Luther's teaching on vocation and, and, and this distinction between office and person and, and the very fact that uh, all secular callings can be made spiritual when a Christian exercises them in faith. I mean, this led to a, an unprecedented uh, enhancement of secular life. I mean, for the first time, Luther is denying the notion that those who have secular callings are somehow second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. I mean, that was very much Rome's um, the ethos of, of being a Roman Catholic. Um, if you were a monk or a priest or a holder of religious office, you were a kind of first-class citizen in the kingdom of God, not just because of office, but because of person. Everyone else, holders of secular callings, are somehow deficient. If they were really serious about their Christian faith, they would pursue a religious calling. That's the idea. I mean, you can see this even in, even in, in, in evangelicalism. If any of you have gone to a, a Christian college uh, or something, there, there can be, unhelpfully, in the Christian college world, uh, a sense that maybe if you're not pursuing you know, a biblical studies major, maybe not quite as serious about your faith as you, as you might have been. My father-in-law is an eye doctor, um, an eye surgeon, and he complained about this all the way back in his in his uh, university group in college. He was studying science, and he said the Christians who were really devoted members of university were preparing to be missionaries. And he thought that was a wonderful calling, but described how sometimes you'd feel a little bit like a second-class citizen. And Luther's just challenging that notion, saying, no, all secular callings, if exercised in faith, have spiritual significance and meaning. There is no kind of inferiority complex for those who go on to be doctors or shoemakers or anything else. And that's a pretty unprecedented uh, challenge in, in, in Christendom, and one that actually did transform 
culture in pretty remarkable ways. You could almost simplify it by saying that the Reformation um, radically simplified religious life by eliminating saints, relics, pilgrimages, um, spiritual life, in other words, religious life is radically simplified in the Reformation by being reformed according to Scripture. What matters is the preaching of the Word and the sacraments. There are fewer sacraments, two as opposed to seven. So simplifying religious life, prayer, the creed, the preached Word, the sacraments, that's what Christianity is about. Christianity is about the gospel. While at the same time, simultaneously, the reformers following Luther's lead enhance then secular life. So religious life is simplified. Secular life is enhanced, given new meaning and significance when, when Christians uh, pursue their secular callings in, in, uh, in faith. That's a pretty radical, brings about a pretty radical transformation um, of, of culture. It's one of the reasons why, particularly the lower and the middle classes, uh, 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 were won over so quickly to the Re- Re- Reformation. To the extent that these truths are biblical, I think reading 1 Corinthians 12 is, is one good place to see that they are, um, it gave new value and meaning to, uh, to the laity. And so that's one of the places where Luther starts in this appeal to the German nobility. Um, it's not just the German noblemen who are important, right? It's not just the Pope won't reform the church, maybe the German nobility will. Um, and he's reminding German nobility, it's not just you as noblemen, uh, it's all believers in Christ who, who share a burden in reforming the church. Well, that's the first, um, the first wall. The second wall um, the priority of papal uh, interpretation. This is an interesting one. Here Luther goes right after uh, the notion that the Pope alone um, is, has the authoritative word uh, on the word of God. And here's what he says. Uh, the second wall is still more loosely built and less substantial. The Romanists want to be the only masters of Holy Scripture, although they never learn a thing from the Bible all their life long. They... They assume the sole authority for themselves, and quite unashamed, they play about with words before our very eyes, trying to persuade us that the Pope cannot err in matters of faith, regardless of whether he is righteous or wicked. Yet they cannot point to a single letter of Scripture to support this claim. This is why there are so many heretical and unchristian, even unnatural ordinances uh, that stand in canon law. What Luther does in, this, in criticizing the second, uh, the second wall, the primacy or priority of papal interpretation, is to marshal a wide variety of scriptures to combat this notion, and does so in a pretty ingenious and creative way. Um, first thing he does is, is quote, Numbers 22. Uh, this may be the only one we have time for today. Let me just read it quickly. Numbers 22, um, starting about halfway through the chapter. It's worth reading just to be reminded of the story. It's the story of Balaam and Balaam's donkey. Um, The the Moabite king uh, sends delegates to to Balaam to try to get Balaam, the prophet of God, to curse the Israelites. 
Balaam won't do it. Um, he's trying to follow the Lord's instructions, but has a misstep, disobeys uh, God, and so has, starts to have problems with his, uh, his transportation. Uh, here's the story. But God's anger was kindled uh, because he went, because, because uh, Balaam went with the Moabites. Uh, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I'd kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would, have killed, uh, I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. An interesting story. There's two more passages quickly to read. I handed these out. Um, Genesis 21, 12, I think, or, and also uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 16. You have the Galatians one ready? This is Galatians, this is the story of Peter uh, and Paul's confrontation in Jerusalem. There we have Peter or Paul confronting, criticizing uh, Peter. And the one more passage, Genesis. The context there is. Uh, 
Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah wants to send Hagar away with Ishmael for fear that then Ishmael will, will inherit because she's just had a child herself now. And Abraham's conflicted, doesn't know what to do. And the Lord says to Abraham, listen to the counsel of Sarah. So what do these three passages have in common? How does this become an argument for Luther against the priority of papal interpretation? All three of them are examples where someone who should be in charge with people under them is forced to listen to uh, the best interpretation, the word of the Lord from, from someone underneath them, right? Um, if there's ever an example of someone who should be in charge, it's Balaam over his donkey, Right? A donkey is surely someone with no office or status uh, or significance. But Balaam, a prophet of the Lord, is wrong. He's made a mistake, he's disobeyed, and he's forced to receive correction from a donkey. Right? Um, Peter and Paul. This is a particularly interesting one, especially at the time of the Reformation, because who's the Bishop of Rome? supposed to be the, the successor of, of Peter. And here's Peter, who's in the wrong, receiving correction from someone else. Another example, Abraham is supposed to be the head of his house. His wife should be submissive to him. And she tells him, look, here's what you need to do. Abraham doesn't know. He's unsure. And the, and the word of the Lord comes to him and says, listen to your wife, buddy. That's something we can all... <laughs> learn from. Um, so those are three examples where someone who should be in charge receives correction, instruction, and rebuke from someone uh, underneath them. Three very different examples. You see something of, like, of Luther's genius in, in, in creatively using even Old Testament narratives uh, to make his point. There are hosts of different biblical New Testament passages that we could cite uh, on this as well. Um, all Christians, like the Bereans, should search the scriptures, etc. Um, and so Luther, in the end, counsels a kind of, uh, to put it technically, a kind of hermeneutics of trust. Trust your pastor, right? But don't just blindly assume that by virtue of holding an office, your pastor has the best interpretation. Uh, follow the best interpretation. Uh, search the scriptures yourselves. Uh, no, he says, citing 1 Corinthians 2.15, a spiritual man judges all things. Or 2 Corinthians 4.13, we have one spirit of faith uh, and a spirit of discernment, etc. Listen to wise counsel. So Luther tries to take down, I think successfully, the, the second wall. The third wall is the right of, uh, the singular right of popes to call councils. Because in a sense, what Luther's calling for is for the German nobility to call a council. But we saw this in our little history of the medieval church. Um, meanwhile, the popes sometimes are assuming that they alone have the right to call a council. If the pope doesn't call a council, no council is legitimate, according to Rome. And Luther says that's the third wall uh, that they're hiding behind. The third wall, he says, falls of itself when the first two walls come down. Uh, when the Pope acts contrary to scriptures, it's our duty as Christians to stand by the scriptures, to reprove the Pope, and to constrain him according to the word of Christ. And he cites Matthew 18. 
how much more should we do, uh, do this, follow Matthew 18, when the member that does evil is responsible for the government of the church and by his evil doing is the cause of much harm and offense to the rest. But thinking about Matthew 18, Luther says, how am I to accuse him before the church unless I call the church together? Well, it must be possible to call a council in order to follow Matthew 18 with the Pope. If we rely upon the Pope and the Pope's the one who's guilty, then we have a problem. So Matthew 18 demands that, uh, that Christians, uh, that elders, leaders in the church, have the right uh, to, call, to call a council. He gives a couple of historical examples. Uh, one that we already looked at, the Emperor Constantine calling the Council of Nicaea. It says there's precedent. The Pope refused to handle this situation. Constantine calls a council instead. A biblical example he cites um, Peter didn't call the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. The apostles and elders did. So there's a clear example in Scripture. Um, therefore, uh, Luther c- concludes, uh, when necessity demands it and the Pope is an offense to Christendom, the first man who is able should, as a true member of the whole body, do what can be done to bring about a truly free council. And he gives a couple of rhetorical questions that are uh, amusing to consider. Should citizens let the village burn because nobody has the authority of the mayor? Should citizens let a village burn because the fire breaks out in the mayor's house? No, he says. Clearly, it's the duty of every Christian and every citizen um, to fight to fight the fire. There's a few more examples here we could um, we could look at, but let's let's cut right to Second Corinthians ten. In 2 Corinthians 13, these are the next two passages that, that Luther explores. Let's hear them first. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 7 and 8, and 2 Corinthians 13, verses 7 and 8. Read the, the last f- phrase or two of authority to build you up. Then he goes on. The point there is the Lord gave Paul authority to build up, not to destroy. Similar point that, that he makes in the next passage, 2 Corinthians 13, verses 7 and 8. So, for we cannot do anything against the truth, only for the truth. So Luther spends time thinking about both of these two passages in order to make the point. If there is any authority given at all to the church, it's authority to do good, not to do harm. And so if the Pope is doing harm, then uh, he has no authority. And therefore, Christians have the responsibility and obligation uh, to, uh, to take matters into, uh, into their own hands. So uh, Luther concludes, uh, here's, here's what he says. Um, with this, I hope that all this wicked and lying terror with which the Romanists have long intimidated 
indulge our consciences. This is how the whole thing reads. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, he's quite polemical. Uh, and and uh, eventually he'll link the Pope to the Antichrist. Um, well, I'll read you the whole passage. Uh, with this, I hope that all this wicked and lying terror with which the Romanists have long intimidated and dulled our consciences have been overcome. They have no right to interpret Scripture merely by authority and without learning. They have no authority to prevent a council, or even worse yet, uh, at their mere whim to pledge it, but then impose conditions on it and deprive it of its freedom. When they do that, they are truly in the fellowship of Antichrist and the devil. They have nothing at all of Christ uh, except the name. Nobody in Christendom has authority to do injury. There is no authority in the church except to promote good. So clearly Luther will resist uh, and fight Rome. He will fight for a reform uh, of the church. But once again, there's also always this political side of things. What are the implications of Luther's fight against, uh, against the papacy? Uh, what are the implications in the political sphere? Because remember where we started this whole Sunday school series, Luther after Worms is a heretic and also a criminal in the state. And so he'll have to resist the state on some level uh, as well, which brings a whole host of, of new problems. Uh, and that's what we'll take up next week, because I think we're all out of time. We're all out of time? Yes. Elder Taylor is nodding vigorously. Um, let's pray. Let's give thanks to the Lord. <coughs> Almighty Father, uh, let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of you. Uh, we give you thanks. Your counsel stands forever. Your word is sure. Uh, the plans of your heart, uh, it's the plans of your heart, the desire of your heart to bless your people uh, and to save us in and through uh, the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Preserve our souls um, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so to you, to the Son, uh, to the Holy Spirit, we give thanks and we give you all glory and honor uh, this Lord's day and, and forevermore.